Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. 1 John, chapter 3, week 4 of our series, Teaching Through 1 John. The series is called Be Light. Now, light is a universal concept, no matter what culture you're in, no matter if it's the first century church or the 21st century church, we understand what light does. If you're in a dark room and you turn on the light, now this is granted electricity, they didn't have electricity, if you light a lamp, if you start a fire, you can see. Light allows you to see when it's dark. It lights up things. It expels dark. This is a concept that everyone under, like, you don't, there's not a lot of cross-cultural interpretation when it comes to the concept of light. It's light, and this is what it does. So, um, here's a brief story. I was at a men's retreat with our church a couple weeks ago, last weekend, actually, and uh, I lost in Cornhole. You ever played that game? Bag toss. I lost, and I was kind of discouraged a little bit. Should have won, and so we're, we're yeah I know poor me we're at this little pavilion and our cabins are over yonder and there's two different ways to go, you can go a little bit longer way but you but you it's there's a street and there's lights, and you can get to your cabin or you can go the shorter more direct way but there's no lights, and it's kind of a shortcut. Well it was raining really hard on Friday, so there was a couple puddles. But I said, let's just go for it. I'm just going to take the short way. I'm a little discouraged. I don't want to walk longer than I have to. I just want to go to bed. So it's like midnight. You know, I'm just trying to get home. So I'm walking, and I'm actively trying to avoid puddles, but I can't see because there's no light. It's dark. And in my effort to avoid puddles, I step in a major puddle. And I just get soaked. My feet are soaking wet. And I'm just like, disappointment on top of disappointment. I'm soaking wet, and I lost my game. And I'm like, ugh. So this is just a simple, silly story, but to say this light helps us see. When God enters a situation, he, he, he is light. He, he provides illumination to where we can see where we're going. And then we're called as his followers, as the people of God, the children of God, to be light in the world, to illuminate situations, to expose darkness, and to allow God to expose darkness in us. If we're going to be light, we need to be lit up, right? So that's what we want to talk about today. As we look at First John chapter 3. Now, in the Gospel, or not in the Gospel of John, this is the letter of First John. So let's be clear, this is different. In the letter of First John, we know from previous weeks that the purpose in his writing is at least threefold. It's to refute false teaching, to reassure the believers, and to describe righteous living. And we'll see all three of those things in chapter 3 today. But on top of that, in this, per, in this um, chapter particularly, he's, he's really presses out the implications of what it means to be a child of God. And he, and he looks at, he really just wants, he wants us, he wants his church and through the Holy Spirit, he wants us to understand today the importance of being consistent with who we are. Living a life that, that, that reflects our, our standing before God as children. And to be consi- consistent and congruent with our position before God as children. So the, 
the chapter that we're looking at, chapter 3, this is kind of how we're dividing it up. The first section is verses 1 through 3. It's very direct, very simple. It's that God has called us his children by declaration. This is not something we've earned. It's not something we've purchased. It's something that God has done for us in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We confess our sin. We look to him, and he does it. He calls us children. The second section is to say, let's make sure we're his, we're his children by practice. Let's make sure by the way that we live that we're his children in the, in the way that we reflect him. And so then it's these little subsections, sin versus righteousness, hate versus love, love is movement, we can have confidence before God, and then in some, believe in Jesus and love each other. So in past weeks we've learned that God is light, that we have fellowship with him when we walk in the light, when we, when we say we have fellowship but we walk in darkness, we're lying. If we, if we say we have no sin, we're lying because that's why Jesus came. If, if we say that we have, we're without sin, we call God a liar. And so sin is this ongoing theme. We're to love our brothers and, and not to hate them, which is this ongoing theme. And anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, that he's not the Son of God, is anti-Christ. And we're to not believe them and not follow them. There's persuasive teaching in the first century. There is today that would want to say that Jesus is not who he says he is. And John's adamant against that. So, we'll start in this First section, verses 1 through 3 of First John chapter 3. It says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So this is easy to just kind of, okay, uh, what, are you, what are you saying? Like, let's keep moving. But I want us to pause here for a minute. And just understand that we can't read past this. This is entirely vital to understand everything he's about to say. The word see is like, behold, look, stop, slow down, notice. Wait, wait, wait. You need to understand. God's called you his children. You're his children right now. You're standing before God is as a child standing before a father. And if you don't know that, then everything I'm about to say is going to fall on, on the wrong ears. It's going to fall on the wrong understanding. We're his children by declaration. This is what he's done in Jesus. He's called us his children. And the implications of that is what, what he'll flesh out in the rest of it. But any, we... Any father, any good father, wants their children to look like them and to represent him well when he's not there or when, when, they're, when they're on their, on their way. Right? There's, there's this idea of reflection and representing where you come from. And as we look, as we look further into this, we'll see that, that your actions say something about where you come from and, and, and whose you are and, and your source 
And so we'll get a little uncomfortable as we look at, at what this means in a minute. But before we move on, I want to point out a couple things. John is, is saying that there's this hope. And this is a purifying hope. That the hope is, talked about in verse 3, that he's coming again. That Jesus is returning. And that when we see him, we will be like him. So whatever distance from, like from, in the way that you look, in your appearance, however distant you are from Jesus at this point, there's this hope that, uh, that's a magnetic pull that pulls you to look more and more like Jesus as, as, his, as his return is, is, is nearing, as you become more and more to reflect his image. And it, the hope purifies you. The hope sanctifies you. The hope pulls you closer to the image of Jesus. And so we can't lose this hope. The hope is that, that we will see Jesus and that he's coming back. If we lose this hope, well then the, the, mag, the magnetic attraction dissipates. But when we, when we can hold in our mind a, a real hope of a real Jesus returning to the real world, then there's a magnetic pull that pulls us to look and to reflect Jesus more and more to the world and to our own community. So this is what he's trying to set up. And he's saying that Jesus, that God calls you his children even before you perfectly reflect his son. Even before you look just like Jesus, which is the goal, he says, no, even now you're my children. It hasn't even yet appeared what you will be, but even now you're my children. And you need to know that if anything else is going to make sense. So that's where he starts. He says, you're my children. Now let's see if you look like, let's see, let's do, let's do a couple tests here. Let's see if you look like my children. Let's see if you look like my son. So verse four, we're calling it children by practice. Sin versus righteousness. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So in this section, John uses the word practice six different times. First service made a joke afterwards, one of the ladies mentioned to me, you know, you should have brought up the fact that if you would have practiced cornhole, you would have not, you would have been, you would, maybe you wouldn't have lost. Uh, you're, that's a good point. We all, we all practice things. For good things, bad things, it doesn't matter. 
what you do again and again, you get better at. For, for better or for worse. If you continue, if you live a lifestyle of sin, you actually get better at it. You get more deceptive. You get more, you get better at lying, better at cheating, better at covering up. You get better at all these things because you're practicing them. If you've ever played a sport, the whole point is to practice the sports so that you can get better at it. And hopefully when it's time for game time, you've practiced enough to where you can perform well. The Christian life, really every life, is filled with practicing things that, that orient you toward a goal. To practice here is this word just that's, that's, that's really about actions. Right? We, from different parts of Scripture, we know that, that sin isn't even necessarily the actions. But sometimes it's just the disposition of the heart. It's thoughts. It's, it's things that we don't really act on, but it's still broken and it still needs fixing. John here is talking about things that you're doing. Actions, habitual practices, patterns of behavior that need to be addressed. So he's, one way of defining this idea of practice is to follow some method in expressing by deeds, the feelings and thoughts of the mind. This is acting on the things that are inside that orient you toward a goal, that push you in a direction. So we want to understand the idea that he's talking about practicing sin, practicing righteousness. And when you practice either of those things, you're being drawn toward the end of that thing. The end of righteousness being eternal life, the end of sin being death. So then, to talk about uh, part of the reason he's writing is to refute false teaching. False teaching. In this time period, there were false teachers who were in the church who were uh, who seemed to have held the, that knowledge was all important. That what you believed about Jesus, there was this secret knowledge, and if you could attain to the secret understanding and this important knowledge of of the divine then that was the goal, and that your life, your conduct, your behavior, your relationship, that wasn't really important. But John's really trying to, to address that, and he's insisting that sin, that patterns of behavior that are contrary to the ways of God, is evidence of a wrong and broken relationship with God. And, and we, there's, no, there's no trying to beat around the bush here. He's saying that righteousness... Righteous actions prove righteousness, a, st- a state of, of being, and sinful actions prove sinfulness. So to say that I have habitual sinful practices that I'm, I'm a- allowing to, lie, to, to exist in my life, and yet I am righteous before God, there's an incongruity here that John really wants to address. We cannot be comfortable, and, and, and Pastor Anthony mentioned this last night, I thought it, was, thought it was a good point. The Holy Spirit will not allow a Christian to be comfortable with sin l- just kind of coexisting with their li- in their life. There's two reasons in this section that John explains that Jesus came. First reason he gives, he says in verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then a couple verses later, verse 8, says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And I particularly like that second one, because in the Gospel of John, Jesus explains that the enemy, the devil, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And yet, he says here that the Son of God has come to destroy the works of the destroyer. Right? The one who's come to destroy your life, Jesus is like, no, I'm cutting that root off of that source. I'm destroying the works, the source of the one who wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy you as a, as a person and every good thing that God's created. And so I want to look at the, what happens in between these two verses where he talks about the reasons that Jesus came. So, here it's kind of laid out, underlined as those two reasons, and then the bold is what we'll look at. He came to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, this is a little destabilizing, this is a little disorienting. John, what are you trying to say? You just got me to admit in chapter 1 that I'm a sinner. Chapter 1 says, if you say you have no sin, you're lying to yourself and you're saying God's a liar. Because that's why Jesus came. So if you say you have no sin, well then this isn't for you because that's why Jesus has come. But then he says, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And then verse 8, no one who practices, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. And so this is a little paradoxical. John, I feel disoriented. I'm, I recognize that, that I own up to my sin, my own brokenness, my own disobedience and, and need for Jesus. But then you're saying that, that if I, I'm sinning, then I actually have never seen him and I don't know him. But I thought I did know him and to know him meant to acknowledge my sin. So what am I supposed to do? I think it's important to point out that John is being rhetorical here. Not in saying that sin is superfluous, but in saying that that this is what consistent this is what it looks like to be consistent with who you are. To be consistent with who you are is to be born of God and no one born of God sins because his seed, the Holy Spirit abides in him. What does the Holy Spirit do? It convicts of sin. Holy Spirit points out things that are distorted and broken and contrary to God's ways, and he pulls them up and he uproots them. And so, verse one men- or chapter 1 mentions that, there, that anyone who does sin, that Jesus is the advocate before the Father, and we can confess our sins and receive forgiveness and, and be made right with God. And so he's saying, John's saying, when there is sin, confess it, but seek to, seek to live a life without sin. Seek to live a life that's free from habitual practices that are against the ways of God. Because in Jesus, he has provided the power for you to do this. That Jesus has transferred us from the domain of darkness where sin is an inevitability, it's a power over you, to the domain of light where you have the freedom to choose to not sin or to sin to do the things of God or to not. The power of sin has been broken over your life when you're in Christ to where, yes, you still do sin, but you're, but you're choosing those things. You're, you're resp- I mean, either way, you're responsible for it, but you have, the, you have freedom over them uniquely in Jesus. John's saying, hey, be consistent with who God says you are. You're a child of God. His seed abides in you. Don't let sin exist. Don't be comfortable with, with, with habitual practices that you, that you know are contrary to God's ways. So, 
Let's keep moving. In chapter 10, or <laughs> chapter 10, in verse 10, John talks about loving one another. Verse 11 picks up. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. you know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. A couple things he's getting at here. One is, if you're able, don't be surprised if Cain wants to kill you. If you're doing the things of God, if you're doing righteous things, don't be surprised when you face opposition or when people misunderstand your motives or when people try to cut the rug out from under you. Like, that's the expectation. The world didn't receive Jesus, and the world doesn't receive the children of God. So don't be surprised if you're able, if Cain wants to kill you. But he's saying something else here. He's saying, you may be uncomfortably close to the disposition of Cain than you want to admit. <laughs> Cain killed his brother because he had hate in his heart. But he, he contrasts it with active love. So to love the brethren is to be, to prove your righteousness. When you're not actively loving people, then you're uncomfortably close to actively hating them. And hate is, is, the, is, the, is the ground on which murder happens. And so you would say, I've, I've not murdered I'm not, I don't hate people. I, I generally, I love people. But if, when there's not an active flowing of love out of your life, then we need to call into question, hey, are you more, do you look like more like Cain right now or do you look more like Abel? Because Abel's deeds were righteous. Are your deeds righteous? In other words, are you loving people? Because if you're not actively loving people, again, you're looking like Cain. Which is tough, right? That's like, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I want to justify myself. John is, John is being pretty firm here by bringing the reference to Cain, but he's setting, he's setting up an example, and he wants to, he wants to say, hey, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and the way that Jesus loved. Because if we're going to be pulled with this magnetic pull toward Jesus, then we need to start looking like him. So, this is what Jesus did. He moved. Love is movement. Love is action. Verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We want to look like Jesus. You don't look like Jesus by thinking 
you look like Jesus. But by actively doing the things that Jesus did, by loving like Jesus, by, by moving, love is movement. You can't, love isn't theory, guys. Love is doing something with your actions that prove, that, 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 that show the love. So, uh, Justin, could you come up here? This is your, just a simple example. So, I want to get over there, and Justin wants to get over here. And there is a, there's a cliff here. There's a cliff, and then there's a wall right here, like a, a other cliff, but going the other way. And, um, and so, there's a couple things that could happen in this thing. Justin could throw me off the cliff, and I would be gone, or I would be dead, whatever. And then, or I could do the same for Justin, or I could lay down, and Justin could walk over me, on me. Okay, so that's all I need. Thank you. So this, yeah, thank you for that. So this is. We're, we're being, this is, this is so, this is a potentially painful, potentially inconvenient, very likely humbling to be a laid down lover, to look like Jesus by the way that you love people. That's what, that's what we're being called to here. And what's important to point out is John is particularly talking about in-house stuff. Like, it, it, he's not disregarding the other commands of God, which is to love your neighbor and to love your enemy and to speak well of those who curse you. But John here is talking about the people who go to your church, the people who are under the same roof as you, the people who have the same father as you, your brothers and sisters in the family of God. You need to love them. You need to love them because this is what Jesus has done. He's laid down his life for us. This is, uh, we, at our church, we care a lot about the heart, right? We want people's hearts to be in a good place. We want hearts to be whole. We want hearts to be restored to God. We want, not just, we don't want just, we don't want your actions just cleaned up and really you're broken. We want you to be whole and from out of a whole place to live a whole life, the heart issue in this passage is that you've closed it. Verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart, you have to ask the question, how does the love of God abide in such a person? Three words to point out. Have, see, and close. You have something. You see somebody else who needs that something. And they're knocking at your door. And you say, Thank, no thanks, not today. Like I'm, sh I'm closing the door to this opportunity to allow the love of God to flow through me. The reason this message is called compelled by love is because this love 
is, is the love of God is the source and the flow by which we love somebody else, right? We're looking to Jesus who laid down his life for us that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You need to be fill, being filled with the love of God and having the tap open, right? Having, having the, the valve open where there's a flow of the love of God through your life and it looks like Jesus. It looks like laying down your life for another person. And what's, what's disillusioning about this passage is John isn't making disclaimers. He's not saying, if you're the only possible person who could love, who could meet this need or provide for this person, and if the Holy Spirit speaks to you audibly three times, and if, if you had a dream last night, about that person, and then you hear about the need. He doesn't say any of that. He's saying if you have the world's goods, and you see a brother in need, and you close your heart, you really need to ask the question, am I filled with the love of God? Am I, am I a child of God by the way that I'm living? Because it sure looks like I'm more like Cain right now than Abel. It sure looks like I'm more like what Jesus came to destroy than what Jesus came to to resurrect and to restore, which isn't to say, it's just about your source, it's about where, where, who are you reflecting in the way that you live your life, because your behavior is important. The way you love and the way you live is, 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 is vitally important to your witness in the world and to, and to the love of God being shown to each other in, in this house. So one, another thing I want to point out in this passage in particular, because I think this is where John is, is building to, is that this, on the back side of this challenge, is a need to be vulnerable. Right? If, I, I, won't, I don't know if Justin has a need if, if he doesn't, in some fashion, tell me. His, he looks great. His clothes are nice. Unless I can tell by something emotionally on him, I, w- I don't know. And I d- maybe I do have something, and maybe I can help him in some way. But I don't know that unless there's a, on, on the side of the need, there's a level of vulnerability that says, hey, things are not well right now. Things, I'm in a difficult place. Hey, I, I have this need, and I don't know what to do. And hey, I'm lonely right now. Or hey, there's, things are not okay. I'm in a difficult, I have a need. Would you be Jesus to me and help me in that need? That is an equally difficult challenge for us, and, but it's implied in this passage. Because we like to be, at least on the surface, we like to be, we're, we're, doing, we're, good, we're, doing, we're doing good, we're okay, we're, we're in a good place. But often, that's not true, and we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to show that. The challenge here is to is to allow people to see the, the the need that you have, and be vulnerable enough to to show it. So he's saying, don't just don't just talk love, act love, be. Love. Love is movement. What would it look like if 
if to an increasing degree, to an increasing degree, we as a church began to live lives where we loved like this, where we laid down our life for each other, not counting the cost of our own inconvenience, not counting the, the, the way uh, of, of, the, of the world where you prioritize yourself over the next person. What would it look like to be a church that's captivated by the love of Jesus that allows the love of God to flow through them to such a radical degree that they lay down their lives for each other? I think it would look like heaven coming to earth because this is Jesus. This is Jesus. He lays down his life for us. So, I'm going to keep going briefly through the rest of this this. This uh, chapter, verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This is saying that by this, by you loving the person, even if you still, your heart still says, I didn't love him enough or I'm, I'm not good enough or I could have I done better. God's saying, no, I see, you actually are looking like my son right now. You're actually looking like Jesus, so I don't, let's just, I don't care if your heart's condemning you. You look like Jesus, and I know all things. And, and God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our own self-perception when we look like his son. When we look like Jesus, he says, no, you, you're my child, because I can see it. 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments to do the things that are pleasing in His sight. What would it look like to be filled with people who lay down their lives for each other? It would look like a people who are boldly confident before God, who are confident to approach the throne of grace and ask for mercy, who are confident to ask boldly and receive thankfully from him because we know we're pleasing in his sight. We know we're sons and daughters. We know that Jesus is being manifest. The love of God is being displayed in our midst. And that, that lifts up our spirit, that rises, that builds a confidence in us before God to, to, to come before him and to see him move in power. And the last section... And, and Rick, you can go ahead and come on up here. The, the letters aren't showing. 23, verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. You know, I thought about this during our earlier in the service. 23, right? Believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ. Say the creed. Say the creed. And love one another. And be, and take, take the bread. And take the, take the cup. And allow your body to be broken. And, and blessed and, and given to, the, to, to, your, to your friend. And given to your brother and sister. Don't close your heart. Open your heart. Say, God, my heart is open before you. We want to be a people of the open heart, a people who lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, a people who allow the love of God not to just come in and sit there, but allow the love of God to flow through us and compel us 
to be compelled by love to love the person in front of us, to be compelled by love to be Jesus who lays down his life for us, that we would lay down our life for our brothers. This is not theory. This is action. This is movement. This is radically reflecting the image of Jesus. Verse 24 says, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given to us. We want to abide in Jesus. How do we know we abide? By keeping his commandments. By loving other people and by believing in, in, in the Son. And how do we know the Holy Spirit abides in us? By the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit that he has given to us. By knowing, by interacting with the person of the Holy Spirit. By allowing the Spirit to convict you of sin when there's sin present. And allowing the Holy Spirit to, to pull you and, mo- and move you to action. To love radically. That's how we know that he abides in us because he compels us to do things. To actually meet people where they're at. To love boldly. The the internal witness of the Spirit doesn't allow us to stay comfortable in our houses. It says, let's open the door. Right? Let's open the door. 